I appreciate our musicians who so faithfully serve the Lord as they serve his church and help us to worship him through music. This morning, we invite you to turn to the scripture in Micah chapter 4. And I realize I asked you to sit down, and I shouldn't have done so. I don't do this very often. So if, if you are able to stand, I would ask you to do so in honor of the reading and hearing of God's word. I'm reading from Micah chapter 4 and from the first verse of chapter 5. The reason for that is that in the Hebrew scriptures, chapter 4 extends through what we call chapter 1 of verse 5. So really it's all one chapter in Hebrew. So we'll be reading beginning in Micah chapter 4 verse 1. Here's what God's word says. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law." And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled. And let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Please be seated. Father, we are grateful this morning for this word. For though it was written 2,700 years or so ago, it is still your word and it still speaks to us because it's from you. 
and your word never expires. We thank you that it is from you, and therefore it's authoritative. We do not read this morning as entertainment. We do not read it as a suggestion, but it is instruction from your mouth to your people by your prophet, Micah. We thank you, Lord, that you've made it clear that though in some ways the words are a little difficult to understand, yet we can understand them because they are written in a language we comprehend. They have a message that we can discern, and your spirit helps us. So, Lord, we thank you that it's clear. We thank you, Lord, that we need this word. You've not put it there just for filler between the other books of the Bible. Just as the rest of your word is necessary, we need all of it because you've ordained that we need it. And we need to hear from our God. For unless you speak to us, Lord, we would be utterly lost. But we thank you that you've put your word in our hands and you've allowed it to be placed in our hearts. And we thank you, Lord, that it is also sufficient. It is not one of a number of many works that we need to find out about you and what you require and how to be made right with the Holy God. But you've put in these pages what we need to know. That by your spirit interpreting them for us and helping us, we will learn all that we need in this life to follow the Lord Jesus, to be made right with you. So Lord, we thank you for this word. We ask your blessing as we open it now. May you teach us, Lord, for we pray these things and give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Some years ago at a church where we were involved, they had something called a backwards dinner. Now that sounds like an intriguing term, but what they meant by that was that we would begin the dinner at one family's home, and they would begin by serving the dessert first. Then you would travel to another place and maybe have the main course, the entree. Then after that, you might travel and have a salad, which we might typically have at the start. And then finally, you'd end up with the appetizers. For those of you who love dessert, and I heard some amens when I said that, that might be a very attractive order of things. Now, I say that because I was reminded of that, believe it or not, from this text. Because the order of things in this text is kind of flipped from what we might normally expect. Let me explain. The events described in verses 1 through 8 actually occur after the events described in verses 9 through chapter 1 of verse 5. The Lord has flipped the order on us, if you will. The dessert is served first. The, 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 the pleasant words come first. And the harder message comes later. But in reality, these things unfolded differently. The latter items unfolded first. And the dessert, well, it's still happening. So this tells me that the Lord has laid this out for a reason. Now, another intriguing thing that we need to look at is where are the commands in this chapter? Anytime you read a passage of Scripture, one of the things that's very important is to say, Lord, what are you commanding me to do? What is it that you're instructing me to do? And as I look through this, the first imperative I see is in verse 10. The first nine verses have no imperatives, no commands. But in verse 10, there's one. Verse 13, there's one. In the very last verse, there's one. So that tells me that the Lord, in laying this passage out, has shown us that there are some things we need to know before he shows us the things we need to do. There's a reason for that. So we're first going to look at the things we need to know. 
and then we'll get to the things we need to do. But by way of preview, let me read to you the three imperatives. One of them is in verse 10. Writhe and groan. Verse 13, arise and thresh. And verse 1 of chapter 5, verse 14, if you're reading the Hebrew Bible, now muster your troops. Writhe and groan, arise and flesh, and thresh, muster your troops. Now that's an interesting series of commands, isn't it? Well, we'll get to that more in a moment. But let's look at what we need to know before we get to that. Reading verses 1 and 2, here is the beginning of what we need to know. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So he's talking about something that's going to happen in the latter days regarding the mountain of the house of the Lord. Now, a couple of things that we'll, we need to know before we study the words that God has given us to know. It's helpful to know, first of all, that prophecy it can have multiple fulfillments. What I mean by that is this. The word of the Lord, giving it a prophetic way, can sometimes have had a, a, an immediate fulfillment that may have occurred historically shortly after it was given. For example, or it can, be, can, can happen down through the years. For example, what many would hold to be the first prophecy in the Bible, way back in Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve have been enticed and deceived by the serpent, after Eve has fallen and, and, and Adam has followed her, the Lord confronts the serpent, which is actually Satan working through the serpent, and the Lord brings this word to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and between the woman, Eve, and between her offspring and your offspring. He will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. And ever since then, the human race-snake interaction has been one of animosity, substantially, with people hitting the head of the snake, and the snake trying to, to strike at people, Typically, the, the blow that humans render to snakes is more severe than the blow that the snake renders to the human. That would be one partial fulfillment, if you will, of that prophecy. But the real fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment, would come later on, many years later, when the Lord Jesus came. The human descendant of Eve, who was also fully God and fully man, and he would confront Satan, and he would defeat him utterly. Resisting all temptations, and finally at his death on the cross, having complete victory over evil and sin and death. And he would crush the head of the serpent, ultimately Satan himself, through his giving up his life on the cross. Or we look at the book of Hosea, chapter 11. And in chapter 11, Hosea gives a, a, a word first of all, of history than a word of prophecy. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Well, for the, the Hebrews who would have heard that at the time, they would have said, hey, he's talking about way back when the Israelites were in Egypt, and God loved them and brought them out of Egypt. 
And for centuries, that would have been the primary understanding of what the prophet was talking about until the Lord Jesus came. And when you read the book of Matthew and you read about how the Lord Jesus was taken into Egypt as a child and then brought out of Egypt, Matthew writes and tells us that that was in fulfillment of what Hosea wrote, that out of Egypt I have brought my son. So you see, there can be fulfillment at one time and then another fulfillment, a greater fulfillment later. And that kind of thing is occurring throughout many prophecies, and it occurs here. For as he talks about the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established of the highest of the mountains and so forth, and peoples will flow to it. It shall be lifted up above the hills. There are multiple ways in which that is fulfilled. So we, we can understand that there are multiple fulfillments. Some of this will be fulfilled after the return of the Lord Jesus, after his second coming. Some of it will be ultimately fulfilled even beyond that, in, a, in an ultimate sense, after Satan is put into the lake of fire along with all his devils and his angels and, and all those humans who follow him. Some of it will be ultimately fulfilled then. But some of it began to be fulfilled after the first coming of the Lord. Because it says, in the latter days, these things shall come to pass. And it's the time following the first coming of the Lord that I will address and focus on primarily this morning. Now, why would I call those the latter days? Because we're looking back on the coming of the Lord. How can that be the latter days? Remember, this was written by Micah about 700 years before the Lord came. 700 years later would be the latter Days. In fact, if we were to understand the scripture itself on this matter, in the book of Acts chapter 2, we read about the occasion when the promised Holy Spirit is given to the church. And as the disciples have gathered in, in Jerusalem after the Lord has ascended into heaven following his resurrection, this Holy Spirit comes upon them just as God has promised. And as the Holy Spirit comes, he gives them the ability to speak other languages. And they go out in public and they're speaking the mighty works of God to people in the streets of Jerusalem. And the people are just jaw dropped. They can't believe that all these Galileans who don't understand their language natively are speaking in all these different languages. And so they're wondering what's going on, and then the Apostle Peter steps up and interprets to them what's happening. And here is what he says. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. By this he means them speaking in other languages, though the outflowing of the Spirit. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And he goes on to give more information. The point is this, 2,000 years ago, Peter was saying it is the last days. So after the, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the latter days commenced. We are still in those latter days, with some of them yet to be lived out and fulfilled. So when he says in the latter days, it shall come to pass, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, that is beginning to be fulfilled already. Now, when we last saw the mountain of the house of the Lord in chapter 3, it was not a particularly attractive thing. In fact, the very last verse of chapter 3 tells us, the mountain of the house 
shall be a wooded height. He's describing the judgment that God was going to put, the temporal judgment upon Jerusalem and the the people who lived there, how the city would be destroyed. It would be a heap of ruins. And the temple that used to be on that mountain, that temple mount, that would draw people there, and it would be a, a, a very precious place. The temple would be destroyed. There would no longer be a reason for good people to go there. There was nothing to go and sacrifice at. And so it would be abandoned. And pretty soon, it would, the weeds would grow up, the grass would grow up, trees would grow up. And instead of people saying, look, there's the temple mount, they would say, look at that wooded hill over there by the ruins of Jerusalem. But now fast forward. After those hard and harsh prophecies, the Lord is now speaking through Micah and saying there's going to be a time where the place of the temple is very important. And indeed, that will be fulfilled ultimately at the Lord's return. Uh, The things that unfold in Jerusalem and from the Lord are going to be fulfilled in a sense, another fulfillment, a fuller even yet fulfillment of what we read here. But the fulfillment is already underway. What do I mean by that? Look at what it says. It says, it shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. People shall flow to it. Many nations shall say, come to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God. He may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. Why is it that the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be the highest of the mountains? Well, first of all, it's not going to be because it's going to be literally geographically the highest point on earth. He's not talking about geography. Right now, the the Temple Mount is about 2,400 feet high in elevation. Mount Everest is over 29,000 feet. He's not saying the Temple Mount is going to grow 27,000 feet higher and stick up higher than Mount Everest. That's not what he's saying. Its importance is what is going to be the highest of the mountains. It's going to be more significant than any other raised place on earth. But why is it going to be significant? Because it's a great tourist attraction? Because it's, it's so prized that nations are literally fighting over it even as we speak this morning? No. Notice what I've just read. People are wanting to go there so that they may learn of God's ways, that we may walk in his paths. What makes the mountain of the house of the Lord so precious is that it is a place where people will go to meet the Lord and learn from him. But notice, it isn't describing a situation where the only way that you're going to be able to achieve that end is to go there. Look what it says. In verse 2, it goes on to say, For out of Zion shall go forth the law. Now, I'm going to address what that word means for a moment. The word translated the law. For most of us who read the Old Testament, we, and even the New Testament for that matter, we're accustomed to the word the law referring to the Torah. In fact, the Torah simply is a translation of this word. It is literally in Hebrew the word Torah. Torah shall go out of this place. But the word Torah doesn't just mean the Old Testament law. The word basically and fundamentally means teaching. In the context of the Old Covenant, it would refer to the first five books of the Bible, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. But in the broader sense, it means God's teaching. It isn't necessarily confined to the Old Testament. Any teaching from the Lord is 
God's instruction, God's Torah. Even the New Testament instruction technically would fall under that category. And so when we look at this today, we can see that there is a fulfillment going because what? God's word is not simply confined and locked up in Jerusalem at some mountain. God's word is now flowing outward. And look what it says the effect will be. It will go forth from Jerusalem. Verse 3, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. That is that the word is not going to be simply in Jerusalem. It's going to flow out of Jerusalem. Here we are in North America. This is 2,700 years after these words were spoken. About 700 years after these words were spoken, the Lord Jesus would come and have his earthly ministry. He would conduct himself an earthly ministry for three years. After living a, a, a full life without sin for 33 years, he would be crucified, buried, rise from the grave, and ascend into heaven. He would send his spirit, and the disciples who were on earth at that time would be gathered in Jerusalem. And when the Spirit came, guess where they began to go and teach the Word? To the mountain of the house of the Lord. In fact, they would meet in a place called Solomon's Portico in the temple. And it's there they would, would, would proclaim the Word. They would teach. And pretty soon, you know what happened? This is found in the book of Acts. It's not some secret knowledge. Pretty soon, people began to come and listen. And pretty soon, it began to spill out. It spilled out into Judea and into Samaria and into other nations. And it spread around the world until here in North America today, we are talking about the word of the Lord. See, the fulfillment of this does not require that we, at least at this point, go everybody to Jerusalem. We don't all have to go buy airplane tickets and fly to Jerusalem for this to be fulfilled. It's already being partially fulfilled. It's unfolding now by the word of the Lord reaching us where we are. And the effect of that is what he describes here. He shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. He's describing a change in the life of people other places around the world with the ultimate outcome that they will not have war. They will not need weapons of war. And ultimately, that will be fulfilled at the return of the Lord, completely fulfilled. But for now, it's already starting to happen. How? In the hearts and lives of people who receive this word by faith as God has proclaimed his gospel and sends it around the world. For the hope of the church is not on our weapons of war. It's not upon the strength of our hands or the philosophies of man or having a majority of, of people on our side or any of the things that the world uses as its basis of strength and conquest. But our hope is in God and the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It says they, these people will, will beat their, turn their swords into plowshares. They'll no longer be, be fighting. That's not their first thing that they will look to. They're going to instead tend to the ground. They, they need plows now and not swords. They, they don't need the spear so much. They need pruning hooks so that they can prune those trees and those high branches on vines. They'll be able to, to enjoy the field that God has given them. They'll be able to plant seeds. They'll be able to sit under vines and under fig trees. 
unarmed because God is giving them protection. Today, God's people go all over the world to bring the gospel. We live in our homes. We live in and uh, visit various places. People travel and spread the word. One of the things that the, 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 the word is marked by is people courageously going to all the corners of the earth, not going with weapons, not going with tanks and so forth to bring the word of God, but we go with a different weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Our feet are, short, are, are shod with the shoes of the gospel of peace, as Paul would write about it in Ephesians. We come and we no longer fear man. We fear the one who can kill the body and the soul, not merely can kill the body. We are not dependent upon winning military battles and thereby compelling people to confess Jesus. It is by proclaiming the word and trusting the Holy Spirit to compel people to work in their hearts that they desire to turn and to follow the Lord. How is it that this will be successful? Verse 4 tells us, For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. How do we know that this plan, which seems so unrealistic compared to, to, to what we see in the world today, I mean, really give up your weapons? Have you seen the world in which we live? Yes. But he's talking here about something different. He's talking here about the outworking of God's plan and the change of heart that is wrought by God through the Spirit and it's guaranteed because God has spoken. You know, there's a couple of ways that God's word goes forth, the, 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 the kind of, of decrees or commands that God makes. One is commandments that God gives that can be obeyed or disobeyed. Consider in the Garden of Eden, God said you can eat freely of any tree in the garden except for the one. You can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, you know, Eve and then Adam considered it and said, well, I'd like to eat of that tree. And they did. They could disobey that word of God. But there's another kind of word that comes out of God's mouth. We might call it a decree. And that is where God says something and it just is going to happen. It's not up for debate. For example, Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. And the photons did not say, wait a minute, I'm not ready yet. Boom, the photons appeared. And God said it and it happened. And throughout the book of, of, of the first chapter of Genesis, God said and there was. God said and there was. God said, let there be and it happened. Or we come to the New Testament. The Lord Jesus is on a boat on the, lake, on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And a storm arises, and the disciples are afraid, even though most of them, are, or many of them are fishermen. They've been on the sea before. This storm is bad, and they know they could, boat could be swamped, and they think they're going to die. And there's Jesus asleep in the boat. What's the matter with him? Doesn't he care? They wake him up and ask him that question. Don't you care? Look at what's happening. And the Lord stands up, or perhaps he sits there, and he says, peace, be still. And the storm stops. The wind and the waves didn't debate with Jesus. When he spoke, they were stilled. May I suggest that when he says here, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken in verse 4, this description of events that's going to happen is of that kind. 
let there be light, peace be still. They're going to beat swords into plowshares. They're going to turn their spears into pruning hooks. No one will make them afraid. And that's already unfolding in the hearts of God's people as we learn to fear God and ultimately to love God and not to fear man. As we put our hope in the things of God and not in the things of man. As we set aside idols and trust the Lord. The outcome of that will be while the world around us is following its gods, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. For this is not a temporary condition of following God. If we begin that condition now, it will extend eternally. And that's what he says. He doesn't just say forever. He says forever and ever. In case there's any question about his duration, it will be for always. He goes on to say further, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Notice who it is that he's bringing into this fearless situation, this well-supplied situation. The lame, those who have been driven away, and those whom he has afflicted. That's an interesting thing. It is not those who would be considered the great ones of the world. Not those who would be considered the well-prepared, strong, and mighty ones. Not the ones who would consider themselves survivalists. It's those whom the Lord causes to survive. It's those whom the Lord gives the ability to endure. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to the church at Corinth. The followers of Jesus. For consider your, this is in chapter 1, verses 26 and following. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What Paul wrote reflects what Micah said centuries before. That is, it is not those who are strong in their own might, but the weak in their own might who are strong in the Lord, who will be the remnant. This morning, that is still true. We live in a world that prides itself on being mighty, being strong, being able, being confident. And that's the image that people seek to, 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 to set forth for themselves. But it's not the image that God calls us to live by. He doesn't want us to live by an image. He wants us to live in reality. And that reality is based upon our weakness being made strong by the power of God working in weak vessels that his power might be made perfect. And it says he will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So we're back there again to that mountain of God. The problem is most of us have never been to Jerusalem. Most of us don't plan to go there. Some of us have been there. But what does he mean? Do we have to go to, tra to travel to Mount Zion to get this? Do we have to travel to Mount Zion to receive these benefits? The writer of Hebrews addresses that. 
Writing in the first century, writing the beginning of the latter days, writing to people who didn't necessarily even live in Jerusalem, most of them didn't. Here's what he said about this matter. Writing to Christians, he said, you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hear what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's writing to people who haven't necessarily physically seen Jesus. They haven't necessarily been to Jerusalem. But yet he's saying they have seen the heavenly Jerusalem. They've come to Mount Zion. They've come to the city of the living God. They've come to Jesus. How would they have done that? By faith through grace. You see, the point and the way that this is unfolding in the interim time is that God is at work bringing us spiritually to Mount Zion bringing us spiritually to the holy place. Because that word that has gone forth draws us to God. We're not going to get up a, 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 a busload of people today to, to go down to the airport and fly to Jerusalem. Given the war over there right now, it probably wouldn't be attractive to many people, and they probably wouldn't let us land even if we wanted to fly in today. But we don't have to do that. You can come to Mount Zion this morning. You can come to the the heavenly Jerusalem today. You can come to the assembly of the firstborn. You can come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. In fact, we must do so even where we are. That's what he's talking about. The fulfillment of this in the latter days. While one day we will see Jesus when he returns, we must see Jesus today because he has already come and he has made himself available through the gospel by those who turn by faith to him. You might never go to Jerusalem in this life, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been to the holy place of God. Because that's really what it was about. It wasn't going to Jerusalem to see the mountain there. It wasn't going to Jerusalem to see the temple there. The temple's been gone for almost 2,000 years. 1,953 years to be exact. It's been gone. But today, you are able to come through the Lord Jesus Christ to that holy place. So we're living a dual citizenship. If you're in Christ, you have a king. And that king is the Lord Jesus. And that's what he is telling us here in verse 8. You tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. There will be a king ruling in Jerusalem again. Now, when these words were first written by Micah, they might have thought, what do you mean that we're going to have a king? We have a king. We have Job, Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. We have kings. But shortly after this prophecy came, their king would be taken away. And ever since then, they have not had a king as their ultimate ruler until the coming of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the ultimate ruler, not only of Israel, but of the world of all creation. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a king. We live in dual citizenship if we're Christians. 
We live as citizens of the nation in which we live in this world or to which we are citizens of. And we are also citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And our ultimate loyalty above all else is to our Lord with whom we shall live eternally. So he comes now and briefly to the last portion of this passage. Remember earlier I said there were three imperatives, three commands? He comes and asks the question in verse 9, leading up to the command, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain has seized you like a woman in labor? He was pointing to the time that was imminent for them, when soon their king would be taken away, when soon they would be taken captive by the Babylonians and hauled off to Babylon. And as it says in verse 10, writhe and groan, the first command that's found in this passage. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. For those who heard that, and for those who were present when that would historically occur a little bit later, they would have probably understood it as the end of their hopes and dreams. They would have understood that God was writing them off completely. They had no hope and no future unless they continued to pay attention to what the prophet said. Because listen to the very next thing out of the prophet's mouth. There, where? Babylon. There, you shall be rescued. There, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. The trial you're about to face is the very thing you need to go through to be made right with God. That would be God's chastening of them. So the command was to writhe and groan. Why writhe and groan? Because they needed to be sorry for their sin. They needed to realize that the distress they were entering was because they had a broken relationship with God and it needed to be made right. And his placing them in Babylon would cause that to occur. Might I suggest this morning that one of the most valuable things in God's toolbox even until today is the tool of distress. The tool of distress. Writhe and groan. It's interesting how he tells them to writhe and groan as a woman in labor. Now I, being male, have never gone through labor. But I have observed it, and I've heard some things about it, and I can see that it is quite painful. I can see it is intense, and I can see that one who's going through it is really not in control of the situation. It's happening. That child is going to come out whether you like it or not. It's taken over you, and it's painful. But there's something that happens. It's interesting he chose that example. Because it doesn't end with just misery eternally, does it? The outcome of that labor is the birth of a child. And when that child comes out, things change. The coming of that child is an occasion for joy. And pretty soon that anguish turns into unspeakable joy and love. That is why he chose this illustration. That was what was going to happen to Israel. That's what needs to happen to God's people today. If you would come to the Lord, one of the most important things that we can understand is that we are in crisis until God rescues us. It doesn't matter how much money one has, how much status one has, how much power one has in their body or in the things they control in this life, if you are apart from God, you're in trouble. 
And life is going to come crashing down on you hard, multiple times and eternally especially. You need to understand that you are in crisis. You need to be in distress spiritually. The Apostle Paul would speak of that. He would talk about how there is a, a, a kind of, of distress that causes repentance. And that was needed. And that is still needed today. It produces a godly grief. My friends, if you're in Christ, it's because you have seen your need. And if you would be in Christ, you need to see your need and to groan until Christ is formed in you. But there's another thing about it. Trials are still part of God's formative discipline for his children. Distress is still part of it. Remember the, the writing of, of James where he wrote, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's curriculum for his people is to include trial and distress. Why? Because it shapes us. It proves the reality of our faith. And one day when we are brought into his presence, we will find that those trials will have resulted in blessings. It will be converted into something better, even in eternity. The Apostle Paul, Paul himself talked about how these, these trials, and he faced many trials. He was stoned with stones. He was beaten with rods. He was maligned. He was persecuted. He was attacked. He was ultimately beheaded. And in all of this, his description of the events that were occurring to him, he called them light momentary afflictions. For these light momentary afflictions will produce something greater. They will produce a, 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 a glory that outweighs the present trials, that, that, that they themselves will be part of that, that these light momentary afflictions are as nothing compared to the glory that is in store. That is why it's important that we writhe and groan. But notice he didn't just say to writhe and groan. He also told the people who were hearing this to arise and thresh. Arise and thresh. Why would he say arise and thresh? He's using the figure here of an ox that would be used in agriculture. For one of the things that they would do in those times is they would, they would grow crops out in the field, and then they would gather those crops in, and they would bring them in and put them on a threshing floor. And there would be an ox, and maybe it would have a threshing sledge tracked behind it or attached to it, and it would walk around, and it would pull this threshing sledge over those stalks of grain and would crush them. And, and, and what was one time stalks would now be broken down into little bitty pieces, so much small, broken into so many small pieces that could come in later with a, a, a threshing fork, throw it up into the air, and those pieces were broken so small they would all blow away except for the good grain which was heavier, and it would fall back to the ground. And they would do that until all that was left was the good grain. And he says here, you shall beat in pieces many people, shall devote their gain to the Lord and their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. What he's saying is this, the function of God's people is going to be like that. Elsewhere, the Lord Jesus talked about the function of the church to be like agriculture. He said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest. For the harvest is plentiful, but the, the reapers are few. Send, pray that the Lord would send workers into the harvest. One way in which workers are needed is to go out and, and to, to bring those souls in that are ready to hear the word. But here's another description of that. Now, ultimately, this, 
this destruction, if you will, that's described will be fulfilled in one respect ultimately at the return of the Lord when he rules the nations with a rod of iron and his saints rule with him. But even in the meantime, as the gospel is spread forth and the church is used to bring people into the crop, into the barn of God, if you will, those who reject it are like the stocks that are going to be crushed. Those who don't believe are going to be like the, They're part of the harvest too, but in a different way. The part of the chaff which will be destroyed. And part of the function of the church in the proclamation of the word is to cause that to occur. The proclamation of the word will cause some to believe and to be drawn and others to be turned away and repelled, even to their own destruction. The church will go on and bring the word of the Lord. And finally, the last command, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. He's talking about, by using the word muster, he's talking about marshalling your troops or mobilizing your troops. The day would come about a century after he gave this prophecy that Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies and would fall. Their mobilization of troops at that time would be futility. And they would come in and they would take the king of Israel and he would be mistreated and abused. That was a, that an initial fulfillment of this passage. But it wouldn't be the last fulfillment. Scripture tells us here in, in Micah, with the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus himself, when he was completing his earthly ministry, would be arrested. He would be brought into Pontius Pilate who would then uh, try him and sentence him to death. He would then be turned over to the Roman soldiers who would give him a reed which he would hold, and, and they would mock him as that was the, a staff of a king. And they would take that and they would beat him in the head with it, just as is described here. But there's something very different. For that beating, though it looked like the defeat of Jesus at the time, it looked like the, the, the church and the gospel were completely discredited and were done with. When he would go to the cross, he would pay the price for the sins of his people. He would be put in the grave and he would rise. And it would be the victory of the king. What seemed to be his defeat would bring victory to him and to his people eternally. And we get a preview of that here in Micah. So muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Church, it may look hopeless. The world will think it's hopeless. They will sneer. They will laugh us to scorn. But the outcome has already been decided by the Lord Jesus. We need to serve. Just like the, the soldiers that are mustered, we need to, to serve in spite of what the world says. We serve not because it looks easy, not because it's popular. We serve because of who the Lord is and that he's worthy of our service. We serve him because he has called us to himself. So we need to writhe and groan in grief for our sin. We need to accept even the trials that come in life because God is working through them to strengthen us, to glorify his name. We need to arise and thresh to bring the gospel and we need to mobilize to serve the Lord. Why? Because these are the latter days and God has promised blessing of his people in the latter days. And he is with his people now through the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you turn to the Lord this morning 
and trust him, to participate in faith in the promises of this prophecy and of the rest of scripture. The Lord Jesus is the king even now. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the prophecy of Micah, how though it was written 2,700 years ago and it seems so distinct and so different from the New Testament, yet it foreshadows the very things that we, the church, hold dear today. And we thank you, Lord, for the fact that you have given us your word and that throughout it, you've declared your gospel pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, we would pray for grace even today that you would help us, help us to believe and submit to the, to the word. Help us, Lord, to turn from our sin, to trust the Lord and in him only to place our hope for right standing, for a right relationship, for an eternal walk with you. So Lord, grant us grace even now we love you, and we give you thanks, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.